Hello there. Thank you so much for listening in today. Uh, my name is Joe Glover and welcome to the Marketing Meetup podcast. Today we have Giles Edwards. He is the founder of dot 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 Gasp. Gasp are an agency who uh, work in the creative spaces and Giles is someone who I have mad respect for. He is thoughtful, he is kind, and he builds his agency around having impact, not just simple commercial results. He genuinely wants to move forward uh, good debates about lots of things. But I think what you'll hear from this talk is a human being who is willing to accept nuance as part of arguments and look to understand things just a little bit more deeply. In this case, we approach value-based pricing. So rather than simply accepting pricing on the basis of uh, the amount of time that you put in, which is a variable, but not the only. Uh, Giles spends a lot more time speaking about the value that you bring to your clients and charging appropriately. It's an adult discussion that feels a little bit uncomfortable in a lot of circumstances because we're not used to speaking about pricing a lot of the time. But this session provides not only a great argument for why we should be uh, investigating value-based pricing just a little bit more, but it also provides uh, a how-to guide on how to start to begin to think about it and indeed execute value-based pricing. Before I pass over to Giles and his presentation, which I, I should say in the presentation, Giles references his slides a couple of times. And if, uh, if you want to see the slides, then the video is available on the Marketing Meetup website right now as well. They are beautiful. Um, but before we get going with the presentation, I just want to say a big thank you to our sponsor this week, who are Redgate Software. Redgate are intertwined with the DNA of the Marketing Meetup and have been since day one. They were the people who provided the venue for our first ever event and continue to provide it in Cambridge uh, as well. They are a phenomenal company with a great culture and most importantly, for the reason why I mentioned them here today, they're hiring. They're hiring uh, senior product marketing managers and an SEO manager right now as well. So if you're looking for your next step into a, a fascinating uh, technical field in, in, in technology and SaaS, then uh take a look at Redgate. Uh, they're a great company and uh, people I can very heavily endorse. With all that said, uh, now's the time to pass over to Giles. So I really hope you enjoy today's episode and we'll speak soon. So I'm really grateful about many things today. I'm grateful for everybody who has turned up for the talk. Um, I wasn't sure I'd be allowed back after sharing the stage with my great mate Ryan Woolman but uh but here I am and one of the things I've spoken up several times on in the past which ironically can be linked to how we trade creativity is the real lack of training particularly within marketing of course there's loads of reasons why training isn't as evident as we'd like but rather than just moan about it Joe has built something quite remarkable where everyone can come and learn and share ideas and and I think its significance cannot be overstated. Um, so thanks for that, Joe. This topic is, is really, really important to me. I think it has significant relevance to the creative industries, which I'm really proud to be a small part of. The creative industries are full of really smart, ambitious and inspiring people, but it isn't currently in good financial health. I don't believe there's one simple solution to remedy that, but I do 
think looking into the commercial side of how creative businesses typically operate is is likely part of the mix pigeon time so i i, I use this slide all the time most of my clients would have seen it and most of them like you now wonder what a pigeon with a leaf in its face has to do with the point i'm making uh, because it is quite tenuous i don't really know the point the point i want to make though is we are living in a time where increasingly the forums that we communicate and socialize within force binaries. We click like uh, on a friend's post or a photo, or we don't, and there's, there's no real in-between, there's no grayscale, despite the fact that answers typically are a shade of gray. So forgive me if you've heard this before, but the great ad man Bill Birnbach used to carry a card around in his blazer pocket, a card that read, they might be right. And whenever Bill thought he was imminently approaching an argument, he'd reach out for this card, he'd read it and he'd put it back. And he said that that enabled him to enter the mindset that while he instinctively believed something opposing, um, the person he was talking to might be right. And it was at least worth exploring an alternative view if for no other reason simply to give them the freedom to share their opinion and he credited that with a lot of his success in business uh, built on his ability to speak with people which i've always really really loved so with a nod to bill you might not agree with all of what i'm going to say or you might think there's useful parts but there's some flaws uh, so as joe said please do use the chat function for questions and we will have a chance, I hope, to talk it out at the end. Now, as with most things, some of this stuff is a little more complex than I'll probably make out, uh, but I'm not smart enough to go too deep. And I'd rather talk a little about a lot so that we can dig into things in the Q&A and go deeper um, to suit, I suppose, the audience today. So please do use that chat function. The most important part of today, I hope, is that by the end, everyone is at least open to considering more ways of pricing than, than they currently do. So who am I and why should you care? Um, you shouldn't really. I've been running GASP, which is a creatively memorable and boringly effective marketing agency for 13 years now. We just turned 13. This is how we announced becoming a team. And when you run a creative business or you freelance or you operate in any given industry over such a long stretch of time, you get to question things, play with things and become aware of flaws um, and areas of operations that seem to be not quite right. And most people moan about them. Uh, we love a good moan. I love a good therapeutic moan. But I'm trying to do it less and, and fix the things I've, I've moaned about, or at least have a go. This is my moan fix graph. It's a, it's a nod to David Hyatt. The other day, uh, last week, in fact, David did what he always manages to do. And he took something quite complex, but something we all probably think. And he delivered it in a social post really succinctly and, and entirely fat free. And he said, we all have two options. It's to talk about change or to stop talking and begin. And over time, that's kind of what happened along this squiggly line um, representing 13 years. 
I've tried and often failed to change things for the better. And there's many other things, but today our efforts and attention is one of the most critical that directly and indirectly affects many of the others, which is the billable hour. My agency changed how we price about five years ago, and it's actually become, I believe, a competitive advantage of sorts. And it has definitely helped us win work versus agencies who operate solely to a billable hour and I'll touch on how towards the end and to truly change what is broken we require a critical mass and to achieve a critical mass we need to build momentum and despite me thinking that it was really up to the bigger larger creative agencies and businesses to create change I'm now sure that the opposite is true because so many big businesses tell me since I shared an internal uh, pricing strategy deck that I gave to our team a few years ago countless big network agencies have requested a copy and a few notable names have applauded our efforts to create change and kind of explain that actually it's up to the independents who can introduce new systems who can flex much easier and create change um, who need to lead this so I hope that today amongst us, there's people who in some instances would describe themselves as competitors to my agency because we really need to help improve and, you know, dare I say, save this industry or that arena which we get to scrap in together is just going to continue to get smaller and smaller and, and it's unsustainable and the consultants will, you know, continue to eat our lunches. If there's one thing I want you to remember today, it's this. Um, partly because it's one of the only truly original things I'm going to share today. I wrote this rather pithy line. Uh, the rest of my deck is mostly regurgitated wisdom from a, a variety of pricing, training courses I've been on, books that I've read, uh, talks that I've seen. It's a reflection of my wild life. Uh, I think we charge for time that it takes to produce often truly magical ideas. And we give the magic away in the process. Here's three key starting points. So time is no measure of creativity. Time is a unit of cost, it's a unit of overhead. So it's a factor to consider, but it's not a measure of value. We must use value and outputs over cost and inputs. So frame everything you can around value and outputs over costs and inputs. It's as if a restaurant menu charges by the time it takes to cook a dish. Do everything in your power to understand the value to the buyer, to the client. This is a vital part of value pricing and it's linked to point three, which is really, really important. In the context of business, it is appropriate to talk about money. It's not only appropriate, it's vital and it requires practice. As Blair Ends writes in his book, Pricing Creativity, the framework for the value conversation is simple. And I think everyone will find the different methods of pricing here relatively easy to understand. But Belair believes the biggest barrier keeping us from value-based pricing is our own comfort level with the subject matter and that comfort level to talk pricing. So let's talk pricing. So credit to whoever originally said what gets mismeasured gets mismanaged. I did try to find out, but all I 
discovered was Rory clarifying he couldn't remember either, but it definitely wasn't him. But it doesn't make this point any less valid. Pricing in general is really interesting, yet neglected. People are really good at costing and understanding what their costs are to do work, but they often haven't studied professional pricing. And that just puts everyone at a disadvantage when you're negotiating with procurement teams who typically have. Most creative agencies, though, of course, not all, use what is known as a as cost plus. You take your total overhead, your total costs, and you just stick a margin on top. It's pretty unspectacular. And I'm a big fan of simple, but as creatives, I think we could be a little more imaginative about things. Not that this route one method is necessarily always flawed. Uh, I'm sure there's many who do operate this way and enjoy healthy profits. I simply know that many more who do don't. And there are a lot more methods of pricing that you will likely be familiar with in the real world. But like me, until I embarked on my pricing mission five or six years ago, I hadn't really considered and I hadn't really thought about, especially how it could be applied to uh, my business. Uh, Max Hoppy's brilliant marketing meetup talk, shout out to Max, mentioned that fridge prices are higher when the weather is hot because that's when people's fridges tend to break down because they work harder. It's just an example of demand-based pricing. Without intending to sound like a Victorian, the opposite is true with a chimney sweep that we've used before. When it's freezing cold and people with wood burners or open fires need to unblock their chimney, demand and prices rises. rise. It's, you know, simple, simple stuff. Disneyland operates dynamic pricing based on all sorts of variables, including the weather, but also day, time, month, crowd levels uh, and more. Uber's prices, too, they're dynamic based on all the obvious things such as time, location and that supply and demand. But it rather ingeniously or unfairly takes your motivation to pay into account, which they know goes up when your smartphone battery goes down, or at least is in its last remaining bars. Tesla is the same like many B2B SaaS products like Trello, MailChimp, or you know, countless scheduling tools. They have a pay to unlock feature. It wouldn't make economical sense to not just put the same battery in all of their cars, not least because of production cost implications versus just creating one. So the longer range vehicles are mostly the same, simply with a larger range feature unlocked. So it's quite innovative, which is how the um, Marmite of eccentric billionaires Elon Musk was able to remotely increase the range of people's cars who were fleeing wildfires in the US a few years ago at the touch of a button. Airlines as well, they do a magnificent job on this and not just via different flight classes. What used to be fixed is now unbundled. So from luggage allowances to seat reservations to fast track boarding, they have re-educated the customer on how to acquire their product. Interestingly, if you use a VPN, you can sometimes buy the exact same 
ticket from an IP abroad and save money because the price is often tailored even to the country that you're buying from. And these variables and the parallels of these variables can be discovered by having conversations around value with your clients and truly understanding your client, which is my prompt to introduce you to Amy Keane. Sorry, Amy Charlotte Keane. Amy thinks we've all got middle names, so we may as well use them. Ask questions of your customer. Explore some unbundling of your own. And as ever, the researching and the understanding of your customer reaps rewards. How else can you add options to your pricing? There are likely lots of ways, and I encourage you to give that some, give that some thought. It all stems from that understanding the value you might create rather than looking inwardly at your own costs. Anyone as old as me might remember when you used to buy Adobe Photoshop, it was one lump fee owned, done which was conveniently shareable, uh, but now it's, it's moved to a subscription model. I've, I've always struggled with the conditions agencies have created, which almost encourages clients to compare us like for like, almost as manual workers. There's nothing against manual work, but we aren't in the manual working game. We don't create uniform commodities or widgets in a factory. And as Rory articulates so well, when price per unit of time is our measure, it's a race to the bottom. Mark Ritson says, in every part of the marketing industry, from creative agencies to strategy consultants, the traditional business model was to make money on the execution while doing the most valuable bits for free. Now that model has fallen apart. I'm reluctant to read slides, but Mark makes a great point about that divorce from media and the financial implications that had. He goes on to say, we all made our margins on the superficial stuff. It was when ads were made and commissions were charged that agencies could finally see some, some coin. But we've lost the media where the margins accounted for the valuable bit. Subsequently, and since then, client procurement has squeezed those commissions. Procurement teams who despite their perceived flaws, are trained in finance and pricing. They're literally professional buyers. The problem for marketers is that despite the hard stuff never being in greater demand, the easy stuff no longer pays the rent. Mark makes the point that historically, agencies have always given away the best part of what they do for free and therefore had to make money back through the media, marking up advertising, 30% or whatever number you picked. There's now a 40 year decline in profitability in the agency business. Um, those margins, which were once around 30% are now as low as 10. And now that opportunity to make a, a fair profit is gone. This slide is, is, is caveated for good reason, this image has flaws, I, I accept, and it's a little bit more complicated than this. But in the current conditions where so many are struggling financially, there's huge consequences. We pay less or we work harder, or I see both. We often can't afford experience, which has to be part of the ageism problem, and we cannot train our people. Ever since GASP started sending our team on the brilliant 
uh, mini MBAs, I can't move for people telling me how rare that is and how few can afford to train their staff. Many still pitch freely, jump through speculative hoops for new business, accept ludicrous payment terms and think that someone else is going to solve the problem. But it's I mean, that's just unsustainable. We're tightening every process and department and, and damaging that financial health of the business and, and of the industry. In 2010, so 12 years ago, Rory Sutherland said, we've developed a kind of Stockholm syndrome where we've been so beaten up by procurement, finance and other people that we've started to take on the worst quality of our abusers. Now, I accept that just because there seems to be a correlation, it doesn't mean there's causation. Uh, that is a common mistake made in marketing departments, best illustrated by causation cat, who probably didn't cause this meteoric damage. Or there's another great example that I had to squeeze in. This is Tyler Vigan, I, I believe, or vegan, who has a suite of rogue correlations. This one showing that people drowning in swimming pools in the US appears to correlate with films Nicolas Cage appears in. And I accept that what I've just said about the industry is very simplistic and as ever a bit more complicated than that. But I do believe there's a truth within it. And I hope this intro has, has highlighted how serious I believe this issue is. When we made changes as an agency and we tried to fix this perceived problem, this is, this is how we broke up our work. So there's primarily two types of work that are easy to categorize really. And I'm sure the same is true across all the creative range from photography to copywriting, design, strategy. Some work is factory uh, and should be priced as such. Cost price will suffice. So for us, this might be resizing an ad. Um, it might be general administrative work an operational task that can fairly and consistently be done and described in an amount of time. And perhaps with this type of work, the main and I suppose only real goal is to, to improve your financial health is, is to focus on efficiencies. Uh, but this is, this is creative. It's knowledge work or magic, as the IPA would refer to it. It's ideas, it's value creation, it's effectiveness, it's strategy. Where the amount of time spent to solve a problem has no correlation to the output. Therefore, it's inappropriate to use a cost plus method. So with some work we've done, whether it's leaving golf balls in people's gardens or this sending scrumpled up paper in the post as a B2B campaigns. This idea generated around a million pounds worth of business. This is knowledge work. This screwed up paper campaign idea, I promise, took about 15, 20 minutes. It was one of those days, we all get them, uh, nowhere near as often as we like, where an idea just comes. Um, it probably hasn't happened since uh, and it may never happen again but the point is had we charged this idea against a time-based rate card that would have equated to I don't know 30 quid at the time and yet 
this campaign from the first wave alone targeting 30 accounts generated close to a million pounds worth of business and our client has been using this for coming up to 10 years ever since as part of their retention campaign now i'm not a huge fan of short-term roi measures i think they can be very misleading but <laughs> i'll happily quote it in that one so how can we price so really there's three options when it comes to pricing there's inputs which is your cost plus there's outputs which is your defined workload Irres irrespective of inputs it's a it's a relatively straightforward step to take and it was the first step that we took as an agency and then there's outcomes so they're your market effects or your client's objective and it's time that everyone explored that next level thinking and moved away from solely option one there's a key point um, to that where it appears that i'm championing the creatives in this instance and to a point i am but that's just my own bias the truth is a key word regarding pricing on inputs and a word that rory used in his quotes a few slides back is misalignment there this isn't about one side triumphing over another it's about aligning the economic incentives because currently they're totally misaligned with a billable hour what we want more of the client wants less so to benefit financially in that model it rather perversely incentivizes us you the supplier to take longer and this simple misalignment immediately introduces friction in the relationship between us and client who really need to want the same thing. If we solve a problem that generates money, generates business, hits the client's objectives, represents success in the client's eyes, we should both want it quicker. Whereas in a time-based pricing structure, you're financially penalized for solving a client's problem sooner. And over time, as you become better and better and more experienced, and faster you will then penalize you could up your rate of course but let's not pretend there isn't a point where we're simply positioning ourselves out of consideration and, and being seen as unaffordable in that context that's enabled by day rates um this slide is is, is ridiculous uh but it hammers that point So look at input, output, and outcomes. Sell your value, not your costs. We need to move the dialogue from inputs to what the client really buys, the thing, the outputs, the outcomes. Businesses leading this pricing revolution are, are moving towards output and outcome pricing. Success here is reliant on scoping effectively. And I say that as someone who has done a terrible job of scoping projects in the past. So I'm not pretending that that is easy, but it removes the billable hour and it ensures that both parties are fully aligned. The rules I'd advise following are these, and I'm keen to nod in particular to these two unrelated people who have been significant in my own training, primarily with Tim Williams, admittedly, but 
I've recently enjoyed a lot of uh, Blair Ends. Um, he's worth worth looking up. Number one, price the client, not the job. This throws up a few challenging thoughts around value and fairness. When I touched on different forms of pricing earlier, we maybe reluctantly accept that you and I could want an Uber for an identical journey. But if my battery level was lower, I'd pay a premium. We probably more readily accept as a B2B business that the SaaS app price varies by organization size, that airline tickets are cheaper for those booking from Southern Europe over London for identical flights. And surely we must all accept that our creative idea that generated a lot of money for the global e-learning company I referenced earlier, the screwed up paper, is worth more to that business than a, than a far smaller business operating in a smaller market with far smaller earning opportunity. In that instance, both could use the same lead gen direct mail and it would have zero implication on the time the agency required to put it together. So it's all about the value to the client, which directly affects your willingness to pay. Now, people struggle with, with this and understandably because it's a, it's a price discrimination of sorts. And that word, of course, often has very negative connotations. But in reality, it exists in all sorts of areas of life, from student discounts to old people's rail cards um, to, you know, in a business environment, that tiered pricing that you get from, from SaaS type products. GASP has previously subscribed to a YouGov research tool, which cost around £30,000 a year. Had my agency employed over 100 staff, that fee would have been, if I recall correctly, around £200,000 a year. It's the exact same product with exact same unlimited usage. Always give options. Um, always give options and there's there's some really strong behavioral reasons and behavioral science reasons at play here if you give options i guarantee you'll you'll make more money i, I you'll become more effective at winning business my agency implemented this a few years ago um, and it's been significant tim williams feels strongly on always offering three options just as the late great Steve Jobs always did. He applied that rule of three in nearly every presentation and product launch. Uh, but Blair makes a superb point on this, which he readily accepts if just a happy byproduct to the real reason why you offer three. When you offer just one option, here's what we're going to do and here's the price. There's really only two outcomes and one of them is no. Whereas if you offer three options, three tiers and three prices, there's still one no outcome, but there's now three yes options. 75% of the outcomes lead to yes. Another important reason you offer options is because our brains need context to make decision. It needs context to understand value. Offering options changes that conversation from, from that split in the road, that really binary split where the client has to choose yes or no to which of these routes, these options, these 
outcomes look best to you, which has the benefit also of not missing a budget target a client might have been reluctant to share. Which one of these looks best to you? And you're not doing anything sinister. You're merely saying we can deliver this, this or this with a clear indication of what is and isn't included. It's simply which looks best. There's a key behavioral science part to this too. So Blair and Rory as well, of course, shares studies um, on the concept known as extremeness aversion, which is a state that customers are faced with options and uncertainty. We all shy away from the extremes of the highest and the lowest price. It's why Rory Sutherland says to avoid the second least expensive option on a wine list, because that's often the one the restaurant makes the biggest margin on because they know people avoid that cheapest. But you can also use a high priced, a high price, sorry, to anchor and anchor high. Um, so as ever, there's so many examples of this out in the wild. The Italian restaurant Carluccio, the restaurant chain, they list Vespers on their menus to make everything seem relatively affordable. If you're ever in one or near one, have a look at their menu, £2,400 for a Vesper or a mere £9 for a pizza. I'm sure Rory Sutherland once said Aston Martin no longer appears at car shows because instead they take space at super yacht events because when you've been looking at 12 million pound yachts all day uh 300 pounds on a car becomes an impulse buy in these instances the job of the high anchor price when pricing creativity isn't even necessarily to be bought it exists solely to make the other options seem more affordable to demonstrate that better uh, and the way that price options can nudge, the brilliant Dan Ariely shared this great example in his 2008 TED talk. He came across the following subscription offer from The Economist. So on the left, both the print subscription and the print and web subscription cost exactly the same, $125. Ariely conducted a study with 100 bright MIT students and in it 16 chose option a and 84 chose option C. Nobody, crucially, chose that middle option. So if nobody chose it, why have it, he thought. So he removed it and he gave the offer to another 100 MIT students. And this is what happened. Most people now chose that first option. So the middle option, it wasn't useless, but it rather helped people make a choice. People have trouble comparing different options but if two of the options given are similar e.g the same price in this instance it immediately becomes a much easier decision and that same principle is used across all types of sectors and this logic can be applied to our business i'm sure whatever flavor of creative you are there's a, a freelance developer who i know asked me recently how he might implement it on a, on a job especially when the website brief and the scope and the spec is is very prescriptive and i'm sure there's better answers to this but i simply suggested he create two new options with additional value so he has a client budget option a client ideal option and a developer ideal option 
don't be afraid to recommend additional value. The, the, worst, the worst case is it demonstrates you've given some thought to how you can deliver value to the client. Perhaps it's six months maintenance or 12 months maintenance. Perhaps it's weekly analytics reports for the first month of the launch. We'll take that further. It's an analytical report plus observations and suggested solutions. The signals that you then send off when you show you've given something thought are huge uh, and lead neatly uh, for once into my next point. Uh, and the final rule to help guide you, and this is important, this is talk money. I believe, I was talking to Joe about this earlier in the week, I believe there is a big confidence crisis in our industry. And whilst there's so many things to unpack there, one is to do with our ability to talk business. So put on your big person pants and get comfortable talking about money. We're taught as youngsters not to talk about money, not to ask people about money, not to, I don't know, in my instance, ask how much our friend's dad earns. And that's conditioned. But it's conditioned partly because, you know, these social rules are social etiquette. They're also partly of just being British, let's face it, but they do not apply in business. It's quite the opposite. Having grown-up conversations about money is precisely what happens in the boardrooms that marketers and creatives are finding it tougher and tougher to return to. It signals that you are serious. It signals that you are a professional person and you understand your worth. And when we're talking to clients, and if we want to talk value, some really handy tips are to change the words that you use and talk about value and not cost. Behavioral psychologists teach that language is always a precursor to behavior change. Much like historically buying an airline ticket, clients are only operating within the conditions they've been given to operate in. So we must change the language and we must use language as a precursor to this change. These are all really simple examples that Tim Williams shares on, on changes that can be made, and some will be more relevant than others. When you're being briefed, when you're trying to elicit the true value of what you're being tasked to create, ask about desired results. Ask about the desired outcome. What does success look like? Commit the client to that desired outcome and then agree the metrics to measure that success and then the value of those metrics. So in practical terms, if we achieved this success, what would you say a fair price would be? Put it to the client. If that's worth £50,000, would you say that £30,000 for an idea is fair? It's the same logic that marketers use in zero-based budgeting. If X is worth this, then this idea must be worth this, a portion of X. And it just gives you a way of framing and understanding value. Give pricing guidance, offer options. If you feel comfortable taking on some of the risk for a bigger reward, reflect that in one of your options. This is where it can become a huge area for consideration. And this is where 
it might be foolish for me to offer consistent guidance to the you know range of creative professionals we probably have here because that's moving into the realms of I suppose more mature pricing and not just pricing creativity but I assure you once you write down all of the variables you'll find it surprising how much potential there is even on something as crude as payment terms this project is £20,000 and we require 50% upfront and 50% on completion. Well, if that's your norm, if your cash flow is healthy and you want to make it more palatable to the client, offer the same spec, the same output for £2,500 a month for 10 months. You're just spreading that same project uh, fee and that price and you're making it into an advantage for your business and making yourself financially healthier. The key thing, wherever you take this, is this. Nobody ever said this, but this is how many creative businesses operate. Please start understanding the value and charge for the magic we will all be much better for it. Thank you for listening to me. Mate, absolutely smashed it. <laughs> so I don't know whether you've been able to see the chat feature as you've been going, but like no. phenomenal of so much feedback. And I think one of the most striking things really that struck me towards the end of the chat was that there's a few people there who sort of said, I feel like I've got a lot of work to do. And the interesting thing about that was just like, you know, a lot of us are working close to what we perceive at least to be our, our absolute capacity, our, our maximum. And, and um, getting pricing right is the type of thing where, you know, it is, it's that, that opportunity to, to level up in terms of our lifestyles or our um, opportunity to, quote unquote, improve our lives, uh, acknowledging that money yeah. everything uh, with a similar level of effort. So it's something worth prioritizing but also something I think a lot of us don't take the time to consider and inspect and try and get better at. The point on being busy, Joe, is, is, is absolutely right. It, as soon as you operate uh, or work to a billable hour, you're, you're, you're immediately setting a limit to your potential earnings because whatever your day rate is, there's so many hours, there's only so many hours in a day and it precludes you or prohibits you an opportunity to make better value. Um, when in reality and in theory, you could have a, a, a whole series of great ideas that generate huge uh, financial value or represent huge financial value to your customers. So that billable hour really can be a noose around our necks. 100% man you, you're uh <laughs> you speak you spit poetry as well as you speak so uh, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <all> right. <laughs> um you'll be able to see the chat feature on there so I just want to pick out a couple of uh of of comments as well so we've got Adam who says my head is mashed in a good way uh we've got Pippa who says my mind is full of questions Thanks, Adam. which I hope is uh good questions and uh I, I think there was one earlier on as well from Sue who said, I can feel my brain cells being rearranged as I watch, which uh, I really <laughs> um, so I, I think there's a there's a there's a comment here from Richie that's actually just come in uh, is actually also ties into a question that Baz has popped into the Q&A. So I'm going to read them both out in, in succession and, and then see what you think. Um, so the question, the comment from Richie. 
uh, says it's an attractive co concept. However, my main issue with value-based pricing is that I feel the majority of clients wouldn't have the slightest idea how much to value a project would generate for them. It's not just some. It's just not something they'd know. Uh, so and then says thank you for the talk and enjoyed it and the good slides. Uh, so then Baz in the Q and A says. Uh, Adlan's famous Trevor Beetle came up with and wrote the FCUK on a napkin during a client lunch. The client saw the trick and paid for the magic, but that can only happen with an agreeable client who valued the magic. So maybe this is more of a question for the clients in the chat. How many marketers are there or how many marketers are there that are willing to pay for the magic rather than the trick's time? So um, I guess two, two sort of uh, opportunities there to sort of speak about you know your experience with speaking with clients and sort of moving towards this value-based um value-based pricing and, and and how those conversations have gone in 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 the past it it varies by clients and so in, and i can only really i suppose talk of the experience when we started to uh, introduce it it wasn't a overnight complete switch for every client and every project mm -hmm. but it was a qualifier of sorts um and i don't mean that disrespectfully to clients who we may not operate that pricing model to but in some instances where you're really comfortable that the work you're doing is knowledge-based it is there is a you know there is a, an ip value and worth to something those conversations can really qualify clients and it can really i've said um and it's going to sound silly especially as you hinted I might be a poet but one line that I'm I always find myself saying is that these conversations can either start a really good conversation or they can end a really bad one um, so you have to be comfortable that clients won't always be comfortable with this pricing model of course they wouldn't be um, and there's no reason why they should be but I think in 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 many instances what we have found is even having the conversation about it shows a level of sophistication it shows a level of professional um conduct i suppose that's probably not the best way of, of explaining it but it does show that you value what you do and it does it is a grown-up conversation to have about finances so in our experience there's lots of instances where clients have understood it and they have they have they've they've actually not just understood it because that suggests that maybe they're reluctant to adopt it they're actually quite the opposite because they see that we're now aligned and that that misalignment is gone and it isn't a case of us um trying to spend more time on a project because that benefits us uh, mm. if we're using the billable hour you just feel more aligned and i think that's the key point the, the only other point i think is important on this joe is there's no right or wrong uh with with value-based pricing and it would be ludicrous for me to just to sit here and lie that everything we do is value-based because that's just not practical there are there is an amount of work that we do that is more factory if we're going to use that crude title um and it's that for a reason because that can be compared to other providers of that service um so it would be silly to try and change something that isn't broken but the thing that is broken is is how we trade and value creativity and value-based pricing does allow us to have those conversations uh, and it does allow us or will allow us i hope to improve the financial health of, of the industry
that's perfect thank you mate and i really appreciate that distinction there you know using the quote-unquote factory work and sort of saying that it's not always correct but it's it's the start of a conversation i think that's a really useful uh nuance that's worth pointing out and paying attention to because i think that sort of will hopefully be a useful distinction it was actually the number one question in the q a right now which was what about pricing more routine retainer type work so you've actually answered that uh as as we as, as you spoke there uh, uh, there was a question actually joe as well that came in i think i messaged you before <laughs> before the talk i started to receive some questions on linkedin which was ace and a really really um really talented guy paul um sent me a message on on that retainer type work and again it was a, it was it was a case of distinguishing between the that kind of knowledge um based work and, and factory work and that and that's really important and i and, and there's nothing wrong with with adopting even in fact if you're going to make small steps towards value-based pricing even pricing um even pricing your output so and by output i mean a defined deliverable so that could be a website it could be a brochure it could be a suite of photography but because once it's defined and you're saying this is how much you know this this is the project this is the output from us and this is the price you're then completely bypassing any potential uh issues further down the line where you might need to make a set of corrections or authors mm -hmm. corrections or errors because the client can then be safe in the knowledge that they're going to get that output there isn't going to be creep on their invoices and that's why I mentioned earlier, it's so reliant on scoping successfully, because actually you can be stung by value-based pricing. And it, again, we've been stung by value-based pricing. When I first started to do it, it was typical me jumping in at the deep end and thinking, oh, I know, I understand this, I get it right. But if I scope a project wrong, which I certainly have done on more than one occasion, you suddenly realize there isn't the flex to charge more if something goes back and forth. But what that does is it switches your priority as an agency to making sure that brief is perfect it's spot on it is signed off everyone's agreed on what the output is and everyone's agreed on the metrics that you're going to use to define that output so it's not necessarily easy but i do think it's worth everyone considering i love that thank you mate and, and you, you've once again answered the question as as you were speaking because i was going to ask about scoping uh and and scoping questions and and um you know you've mentioned mistakes there that you've made in the past and and could you share like without means put you on the spot have you got any sort of examples or any tr uh pitfalls to avoid or or indeed any great questions that have sort of worked really well in the past uh i think where i think where we've come unstuck in the past is probably more on um applying value-based pricing to retainers mm -hmm. um uh, most of the most of the clients that we have we do have retainer relationships with which is wonderful because you know you're in a way that you're 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 mitigating risk um, and you're not solely reliant on the next project so so there's benefits there however if you if you take on or if you give too much of a financial um return and offer an amount of resource for less for that for that uh, uh, that kind of lack of risk you then without controlling exactly what that uh, retainer might uh, be defined as in terms of what you're going to do on a monthly basis that's when things can creep quite easily um, and it's a point that's valid with the billable hour we um, 
And I suppose it's a nod to that moan fix graph. I talk to people all the time who will moan about clients taking advantage of circumstances or situations. And it might be the billable hour, but actually it might be something like free speculative pitches. They only exist because we enable them to exist and we allow them to exist. We can't expect clients to suddenly say, oh, we don't want lots of free ideas because that's absurd because it would be the same as me saying, you know, I don't want someone else to buy my shopping every week because why would I do that like it doesn't it doesn't make sense and I think that something like this you just need to make sure you're aligning the client and and the um and the agency and ensure that you have defined and you can measure the thing that's being delivered nice perfect and that does lead into Anita's question which is the top one presently sat in the in the Q&A and we kind of touched on it a little bit earlier already with um uh, when we were sort of speaking about the the client not necessarily not knowing what they want but Anita asks how do you price based on an outcome in situations where you can't easily measure it is it more about uh just having using this as a starter for a conversation or is it actually something else well I to be honest I think sorry did you say it was Anita yes so Anita, in that instance, I wouldn't. <laughs> okay. Um, simply because you can't and you shouldn't, and and I think that can only lead to, uh, you know, it's a big risk. Uh-huh. If you're if you're measuring on outcomes, you have to be able to measure the outcome. And to be honest, when I first did, I did a, a pricing uh, diploma about I don't know six years ago. I've lost track of time. I think everyone has with the pandemic. I remember that one of the first things, one of the first issues that I felt instinctively was how do we know that what the client is saying is true? So for example, that screwed up uh, paper campaign was a piece of lead generation. It was direct mail. Now without access to the client's accounts or full transparency of their sales operations, actually all we were doing is we were then, if we were looking at outcome-based pricing, we would be entirely reliant on firstly, the, the client, not just sharing that information with us, the client knowing that information themselves we obviously have no access to their financials, so we wouldn't really be able to have a, a, you know, access to that information. We were also reliant on their sales team being, you know, being able to convert. It was, you know, literally we're crossing the ball and we're just assuming their sales team can put it in the net. But what if they can't? So there's there's so many instances where I think outcome based pricing sounds idyllic and almost too good to be true. And I'm sure there are circumstances where it works and it works brilliantly. Um, but unless you've got that, unless you've got a way of measuring it and a way of demonstrating an outcome has been hit, it can be quite tricky to, to implement, which is why our first steps were to move towards output uh, based pricing. Nice. No, that's perfect. Thank you. That's that's really, really helpful. And it's funny because I was watching today, as I'm sure everyone else was uh, sort of thinking, I was connecting the dots into you know my own business and stuff like that. And we only got a call in a couple of days where I'm thinking this is directly, uh, you know, relatable, but actually to sort of remove uh, an expectation around outcome uh, and to output mm. actually, you know, is actually really uh, quite useful. So, so thank you very much. I think that also... certain outcomes, though, Joe, I mean, you can definitely measure and, and, and it might be. And again, I'm, I'm mindful that this advice might only be relevant to a few people uh, listening today. But if you are, for example, in charge of, of, of planning, a, you know, a, marketing strategy for a client and that strategy is based on all sorts of measures and 
um, funnel data, for example, that you might have collected over the last year, there will be metrics there, whether it's, in, you know, increasing your market share, or it might be various metrics, which are, you know, there's different stages of that metaphorical funnel, which I mean, let's, you know, leave arguing about that to another day, but whether it's measuring awareness levels or consideration levels, whatever it is, that measure is accessible and it is, and it is part of routinely part of a lot of businesses um, own operations. So, with outcome-based pricing if, if you're if you're basing it on metrics like that then actually i don't see why it can't be really really successful because what you're saying is we'll go from 20 percent market share to 25 percent, or we'll increase awareness from x to y so in those instances and you know this is big picture in those instances i think outcome-based pricing is a really really good idea because you're you're taking probably the client's biggest um objective and you're aligning with it so they're going to want you to to win they're going to want you to achieve that so you're going to get their buy-in as well and sometimes with projects you just don't necessarily achieve that level of relationship mm -hmm. no I, I think that's spot on and, and like i'm not getting paid to say this but i think some of the language that you're using and the way that you're sort of speaking about the funnel and sort of moving from 20 to 25 percent and and stuff like that you actually started this presentation speaking about marketing education and a place that people can come together. And, and we do a bit of this, but I, I do think in all sincerity that the Ritz and MBA is a great opportunity to start picking up these sort of pieces of language, which uh, will also feed into the topic of conversation for today. Uh, because, you know, he does speak about the funnel, but speaks about it in such a way, which I hadn't heard prior to that. So I'm not trying to plug in, I'm not getting paid for it, but I think it is a genuinely useful way of having this conversation, right? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, spot on. Cool. Right, mate. It's been the hour. It's been the hour, which is phenomenal. Oh. So <laughs> I just wanted to say uh, thank you. Thank you very much, mate. That was thoughtful, considerate, uh, topical uh, and blooming useful. And, and I'm not just saying that for me. I'm saying that for the people in the comments as well. So thank you very, very much for all the time and effort that you've put into that and for including awesome. the marketing meetup, Brandon. That's uh, that's awesome. <laughs> And uh, thank you also to everyone uh, for dropping in and chatting today and, and making this once again, just a bloody special thing. You know, it's, it's, it's wicked and to start season eight with the strength that we sort of left off season seven with the, the highest attendance that we've ever had for a Mark to Meet Up event is incredible. So thank you all so much. Uh, I really, really look forward to seeing you again next week. And uh, for the meantime, have a cracking week, everyone. Please do share on social media your biggest takeaway and uh, do say thank you to the sponsors. It's the type of stuff that makes a big difference. Take care, everyone, and see you soon. Cheers, Giles. Cheers, buddy. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Cheers.